What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. As always, I am very, very, very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode because we've done it. We have read Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. It has been completed. We have rewatched the movie, and we are here with our Lord of the Rings, The Two Tower episode. I am so pumped to talk The Two Towers. I mean, for a whole host of reasons, um, largely because I'm also reading The Dark Tower, so my world is obsessed with towers right now. There's a lot of towers in your uh, in your headspace. Everywhere I look and see, I see towers, I see dark lords, I see wizards in white, I see men in black. It is going absolutely bananas and absolutely crazy. My imaginary synapses are firing so hard, there's a chance I may have a stroke. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not going to have a stroke. Anyway... Um, a few caveats to this week's episode. One, the we're not going to do the mistake we did in our Fellowship of the Ring. We thought in the Fellowship of the Ring, we could discuss the entire book in one episode. And then we found ourselves recording a 45-minute intro to talking about the Lord of the Rings in general. Uh, so that rightly wound up being a two-part episode where we still feel like we only barely covered the important bits. So yes, uh, just as you're saying, we're not going to make that mistake again. And we are uh, getting ahead of ourselves and saying this is going to be a two-part episode on the two towers. Yep, absolutely. So we are going to, the way the two towers is structured, that there are two actual books within the main book. Tolkien structures these two books within the two towers as book three and four of the Lord of the Rings. We are going to discuss book three, the first half of the two towers in this episode. This is going to follow the story of Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas, the two hobbits, Merry and Pippin, their encounters with the Ents Treebeard in particular, and their sacking of Isengard, as well as the Battle of Helm's Deep, and uh, all of that. We'll be focusing primarily on the books. The movies will be on the table as well. We won't be talking about Frodo, Sam, Gollum, and Shelob and all of that in this episode. That will be reserved for the next episode. Um, Spoiler wall up, I suppose, if you don't know Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. But let's face it. If you're listening to this podcast, you know Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, You probably know it as well as anyone, so I don't think we need the spoiler wall, but just in case you're new to the podcast, of course, the Lord of the Rings is on your to-do list. Please do the Lord of the Rings first. Don't let us spoil it for you. Um, Before we get too deep into it, there is a lot of Midnight Myth news, as well as there's a lot of Midnight Myth ways we want you to give us your attention and money. So Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so if you wanted to reach us, get in touch with us in any way, the best place to do so is on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. If you are a fellow traveler on the path of the beam, stay tuned because the next episode of The Wheel of Ka, our Dark Tower podcast, is coming out in just a couple of days. Derek and Steve are taking on the final book in the seven or eight book series by Stephen King, and in 
tons of ways it is mixing up with what we're talking about here on uh, the Midnight Myth. So very, very excited to hear what Derek and Steve are cooking up for you on the Wheel of Ka. Uh, the other big piece of news here is that we are doing a Lord of the Rings themed giveaway to coincide with this very special series of episodes that we're making for you. So we have just procured the items for this giveaway and we're so excited we want to enter ourselves and win somehow, but that just wouldn't be fair. So what you're going to see in this uh, Lord of the Rings giveaway are uh, a pack of very special Lord of the Rings Trivial Pursuit, which I really want to play with you, Derek. I feel like you and I could go head to head on Lord of the Rings Trivial Pursuit and have a lot of fun. Also in the giveaway are two Funko Pop vinyl figurines, and we agonized over which characters to include in this giveaway uh, and then we finally decided that there were two characters who needed to be in everybody's starter pack for a Lord of the Rings Funko collection, and those are the wonderful hobbits, Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee. So they will be in the giveaway as well, as well as a piece of Midnight Myth merch. So this is going to be a giveaway box of about a $75 value. So we're really excited to give this away to one lucky listener. What you're going to want to do is pay attention to our Twitter in the coming weeks. There will be a pinned tweet on our profile at The Midnight Myth. And what we're going to ask you to do is follow us on Twitter, retweet that tweet, and then listen to our uh, Lord of the Rings Return of the King episodes, the final episode of which will include the drawing. So watch our Twitter and keep listening to these episodes to see if you are chosen for this lucky giveaway. Really excited to share this with you, and we hope that you are excited uh, about the chance to win as well. Yeah, I'd like to just really quickly do a very special Midnight Myth shout out. Would you permit me that? Of course. So I'd like to give a shout out to my cousin, Sean. My cousin, Sean, is a veteran of the Afghanistan war, which news broke that there is a tentative peace treaty. So that war may actually have ended. And I mean, the war of U.S. and Afghanistan post 9-11, the longest conflict in American military history. Sean is luckily back here in the States and out of harm's way and has tattoos of the Misty Mountains and the Mines of Moria on him. And he is a huge fan of the Midnight Myth. And I just wanted to give him a shout out because I love him so much. He loves the Lord of the Rings. And in a day where peace has been made with an adversary and wanted to call out one of the soldiers who fought specifically in that battle, it kind of makes me think of all things Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, in a really non-direct and symbolic way. But anyway, wanted to give a shout out to my cousin. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the service. I'm so glad you're back home. On with the show. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So briefest of briefest of recaps of book three, the first half of the two towers. This features our three heroes, um, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas, right at the end of Fellowship of the Ring. They are there finding that their companions, Merry and Pippin, had been taken by the orcs who assaulted them, and Boromir is lying dead and dying. After putting Boromir on a raft and floating him down the river, they make the decision that they will not abandon Merry and Pippin, and they go hunting the orcs, which takes them to the land of Rohan. There they meet Aemir, who is a rider of Rohan, a lord, and they have a long dialogue about whether or not Aemir will help them, aid them, or bind them. He ultimately decides to help them and aid them, gives them horses, in which they go to investigate this pack of Orakai and orcs who had holed Merry and Pippin, only to find that they had actually flee into the, the farce of Fangorn. There, Merry and Pippin meet a very strange companion, a talking moving tree or ent named Treebeard, who keeps them safe. While Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas are in the woods, they encounter the rise and return of Gandalf, no longer the Grey, now Gandalf the White, who tells them the tale of how he has survived his battle with the Belrog and essentially been reborn as a new wizard, no longer Gandalf the Grey, now Gandalf the White. This takes them to Edoras, in which they are there, and they banish Grimmer Wormtongue, who has been ostensibly manipulating political events in Edoras, the capital of Rohan, in favor of Saruman, manipulating King Theoden, um, shown in the movie as a magical spell. Not so clear in the book if it's a magical spell or just really bad advice, in which Grimmer Wormtongue then gets banished, 
And Gandalf and his band of heroes with King Theoden end up leaving Edoras for the safety of Helm's Deep. There a great battle um, happens in which they ultimately are successful in repelling and defeating the forces of Saruman, who is a company of both orcs and humans. Meanwhile, Merry and Pippin are discussing history and philosophy and mythology with the tree, with the Ent Treebeard, pardon me, and they inspire Treebeard to have a thing called an Ent Moot. This is where all of the Ents discuss and talk in Old Entish, and ultimately they decide it is time for the Ents to march to war to stop Saruman, who has become an enemy of all things that grow in the world. They end up, uh, the Ents that is, destroying and eviscerating the remainder of Saruman's forces. In this, uh, Gandalf, Legolas, Gimli, Aragorn, Theoden come to Isengard. There's a long scene where they get are finally reunited with Merry and Pippin. Merry and Pippin tell them their tale, and they discover this glowing rock in which uh, Pippin ends up getting a glimpse of the enemy's plan, and that's pretty much the end of it. Absolutely, and after that, we enter book four, which concerns the ring bearers and their journey east, which we'll discuss next episode. Man, thank that was you. a bear to recap. Yeah, thank you for that recap. There is so, so much that happens uh, in this first section of The Two Towers. It's a traditional interlaced narrative, what we would call in French entrelacement, which is a, uh, a technique employed by the medieval romance of authors like Chrétien de Troyes uh, and so on, who would write these romances where you would move back and forth between the stories of one knight and the stories of another, or in this case, the stories of Merry and Pippin and the stories of our ranging heroes, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas. We will go backwards and forwards in time to fill in the gaps, and these stories will converge in a thematic and plot way. It's a really complicated narrative here in the first part of the book, so thank you for recapping it. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. I want to kick this off very similar to how we kicked off the discussion on The Fellowship of the Ring. We've reread the book. We've rewatched the movie. Just like, let me know how you feeling about it. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling really excited to discuss this one because uh, it's extremely different from The Fellowship of the Ring. It was a very different experience reading it. Obviously, the movie is very different. Uh, it moves at a quicker pace in some places and at a, so, a slower pace in others. We have moved out of the singular perspective of Frodo, which we really experience in The Fellowship of the Ring to a, a most, most extent, it's mostly Frodo, uh, to a multi-perspective uh, multi uh, element here in The Two Towers, where we are uh, moving between characters' perspectives. We're learning a lot more about their inner lives. Uh, we learn so much more about Aragorn and his insecurities in this one, which I think is very interesting. Uh, we meet brand new peoples and brand new lands. We learn so much about Rohan and the writers and their uh, heroic and valiant history uh, I, I'm really excited to discuss it because so, so much happens and the world just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, I totally agree with you. A lot does happen in book one and it does vacillate between action and inaction. So a lot happens to get characters to a point where then they sit around and talk for a long time. Yeah. And there are moments in this book where I'm like, I'm more in awe of Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Two Towers than ever, having just freshly reread the book, because it is by far the most unadaptable book I think I've ever read. It is not cinematic. <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. So the entire um, sacking of Isengard, the Tower of Orthanc, by the ends happens off-screen, or off-screen, without a point-of-view character describing it, our main heroes get to there, find that the Ents had actually taken over, and the entire tale is told by Merry and Pippin to Gimli, Legolas, and um, Aragorn, and summarily also us, the audience. It's like, wow, the trees literally revolted against the wizard's evil tower, and Tolkien doesn't take us to that action. Yeah, the closest we get is uh, Gandalf and Theoden observing the Ents from miles away. So it absolutely is this kind of offstage action that is related to us later, almost as though uh, the storytelling technique used in the Council of Elrond in Fellowship has been expanded to this entire book. 
But I mean, that does speak to one of the major themes is that the way that knowledge is understood, communicated, and passed from person to person, or whether that's hobbit to dwarf, is through the telling of tales. Um, there is when um, Aragorn meets Aemir, and there is friction between them. Aragorn says, you know, before you make any decisions on what to do with this, would you let us tell us your tale? And Aramir says, yes, I will listen to your tale. And if I judge it true, I'll judge you friends of Rohan. And if I judge it false, I judge you enemies of Rohan. Similarly, when we get to the destruction of Orthanc by the hands of the Ents, we see that this doesn't happen directly to us, the audience, but we learn it from a story within a story. And this happens also in the Fellowship of the Ring. We don't learn of Gandalf and Saruman's battle and Gandalf's imprisonment until Frodo gets to Rivendell and Gandalf tells Frodo the story. So there's an element of a story within a story. And I think that element's going to be expanded through the two towers. We're going to see more stories within stories. We have the story of the Entwives told from Treebeard to the Hobbits. We have all of these narratives within narratives. My question for you, Laurel, with narrative within a narrative, should there and is there a deeper meaning to that? In other words, why the narrative in a narrative? Is there a lesson that we can learn about how Tolkien's communicating storytelling by having his characters tell stories? I think this is a theme that is explicitly expanded upon throughout this book. Uh, and it's something that is building upon the foundation that was built in the uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, I want to point to there's a specific moment uh, in in this sequence that we're talking about the uh, sacking of Isengard happening sort of off stage, where uh, Gandalf and Theoden are riding to Isengard in order to claim the spoils, and they're taking their army with them, and they can see the Ents far off. And Theoden does not know what he's seeing. There are these giant creatures as big as a troll moving. Uh, oh, the prose is beautiful about this. He, he talks about how they move with the gait of egrets uh, or herons, just slowly kind of moving across this landscape like these great tall birds. And Theoden has absolutely no idea what he's seeing. And Gandalf says to him, quote, is it so long since you listened to tales by the fireside? There are children in your land who, out of the twisted threads of story, could pick the answer to your question, end quote. And then there's a conversation that follows about how, yes, that's true. We preserve all of the things that are fair and good and historical about Middle-earth in tales and songs, and yet we've forgotten that those are the truth, and now we teach them only to children and forget about them as adults. So there is this sense that poetry and song are the sources of history, and that the conflation of those with a source of entertainment or a source of amusement around the fireside has removed them from seeing what's actually outside of their borders. So I think this is a, a theme that will continue to evolve throughout the book, but uh, in regard to this first half of the two towers, there is this sense of the blending of the lines between history and amusement, history and how we keep ourselves warm by the fire. I love that point. Uh, I would like to expand on it a little bit. Please. What makes fantasy fantasy? And I'm asking rhetorically. The idea that the epic poems and songs sung by the ancient heroes, kings, and now children contain with them a element of fundamental um, veracity, an element of truthfulness, an element that they can learn about the tangible you know, physical realm that they live in. No one would sit here and say that currently, contemporarily speaking, that a story like, um, I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, Red Riding Hood, for example, that wolves could actually dress like grandmothers, consume their grandchildren, and then be cut open and be reborn. No one thinks that's literally true. The truth that we look for currently in a story like that is the symbolic truth. It's the mythological truth. It is the, the actual warning about being afraid of strangers. It's the moral truth of the story. Whereas Gandalf is telling Theoden that like, hey, there are songs about talking trees, dude. Here's a talking tree. 
You have a word in your language that means Entwood. That's what you call Fangorn Forest. Do you think that that name was made up? This is something that he really says to Theoden. It's like, this has lasted in your language, and yet you have uh, willfully kind of erased the magical elements of it. And what makes fantasy fantasy is that the more amazing elements of these stories and tales turn out to be literally true, not just symbolically true, morally true, or philosophically true. Yeah. They become literally true. The trees can actually come to life. There is an Entwood. There is a tree beard, and they can actually be a military force when called upon. You know, and that is what separates it from an actual, what Tolkien separates it from an actual history, what separates it from also other genres of literature, you know, that separates it, that defines it as a modern fantasy. The idea that these stories themselves are both literally true, that there are magical forests, that those magical forests have magical trees who are magically alive and if pissed off will destroy your tower. And the reader is asked to indulge in secondary belief, not suspension of disbelief, but true immersion in the world that has its own internal logic to where you truly believe uh, the authenticity of this world. There's also an elegiac quality about that conversation, uh, about this sense of uh, losing sight of what is around you, of what is outside of your borders, uh, to a point where you can let it fade out of Middle Earth, uh, that I, I think is is very important for the series as a whole. Uh, Theoden laments, once he's realized that the Ents have been living outside of his uh, his realm this entire time, uh, he says something like, it's a shame that everything that is good and fair about Middle-earth uh, should pass away. And Gandalf says, well, that's our fate. That is what will happen. And at the same time, uh, you know, what is good and what is fair, as well as what is evil, the evil of Sauron, the evil of the ring, these things will not be gone forever. They will be preserved in memory. Yeah, totally love it. That brings me to another reflection talked about in the Fellowship episodes that I'd like to revisit here which is the sense of geography defining a place or a person or a thing. And I think in The Two Towers, that's still relatively true. Um, the riders of Rohan live on Great Plains, and they have access to horses, hence they are great horse lords. The Ents of Fanghorn are living trees. They're in one of the densest, thickest, and most wild and ancient forest, and that's where they live completely isolated. Geography is a huge aspect to the sociological drivers of these different peoples and places. But I do think there's an emergence of individualism also happening here. And I'd like to draw attention, if you'll permit me, to the scene in which, and it's done well also in the movies, where Aragorn finally meets Eomir, where the companions traveling to hunt the Orakai meet the horse lords. And I think there are some interesting things happening within this scene. One, we get people from all over different geographical places all meeting in one, and they are very wildly different. And they have a cultural clash. And it happens between um, Aemir and Gimli. Now, in the movie, it's pretty simple. You know, Gimli says, I, hey, listen, if you want my name, you give me your name. That's how we dwarves work. And Aemir goes and threatens to kill him, and Legolas raises his bow. It's a little more nuanced and interesting in the book. So I want to highlight this exchange in the book. When this happens, Gimli tells them that, and Aragorn tells them that they had passed through the woods of Lothlorien. And Aemir's like, if you pass through these magical woods and you encountered the elven sorceress there, you all must also be sorcerers, and hence you must be evil. And Gimli's like, bro, I pledged my life to the Lady Lothlorien. Slow your roll, Aemir. You have no idea what you're talking about. And in a sense, because of the geographical differences and the borders between Lothlorien and Rohan, they have no contact or knowledge of um, the Lady Galadriel other than rumor hearsay, which has twisted her into something evil and perverse. Gimli, having traveled to those lands, firsthand experience of her, sees her as what she truly is, a person to which he gives his entire life and pledges his everlasting service and devotion to. This causes an element of friction. This causes them both 
to sort of muscle up and Legolas raises his bow and says, you know what? You're going to threaten my friend, another person from a different geographical era that has now come to view Gimli as a brother, as a kin, as someone that will be a lifelong friend says, you threaten my friend, you're going to die first, even if you, all of you will kill us. In this, Aragorn interrupts the whole sequence and tells them their whole story. And the reason I want to draw upon this is the dialogue between Aragorn and Aemir was very interesting. So I'd like to pull out a few quotes from it, if you'll permit me. Sure. I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent here. Before it even happens, Aragorn calls the people of Rohan, quote, proud and willful, but true-hearted and generous in thought and deed. Bold, but not cruel. Wise, but unlearned. Writing not books, but singing many songs. So what are they? They are A, illiterate. We know this, that they don't read and write, but they have a strong culture and tradition communicated orally through the singing of songs. We know that they are proud and willful, which he says almost in like a bad thing, but true-hearted and generous in thought indeed, meaning that push comes to shove, they're not jerks. Even if they are ignorant of reading and writing, even if they're proud and they're over-militarized to a certain extent, at the end of the day, they're generous of thought indeed. Amir is in a bit of a bind here because he judges Aragorn as true and as an ally and as someone that could help all humans fight the oncoming wars. But the laws of Rohan dictate that they be bound and taken to the king who only the king can grant them passage. Amir obviously doesn't want to do this. He wants to help them, but he also realizes that if Aragorn and his companions help him, that Rohan stands a better chance in the upcoming wars. So he's also trying to convince Aragorn to give up his quest for the hobbits and come back to Rohan, something that Aragorn will not do. So a few things Aragorn says to Amir that the news of the North is, quote, the doom of choice. And I want to meditate on that, the doom of choice. That's how he opens up his tale of what they've been through, the doom of choice, meaning that there are no good choices left. The only recourses that any of them have will lead to war, will lead to suffering. In essence, they are, as Zonpra Sartre said, condemned to be free. You have to pick your poison, literally. There is nothing but violence on the horizon. It's just about how we want to meet that violence and what weapons we want to take with us when we meet it. You know, one of the writers says, do we walk with legends or on the green earth? When asked upon if they had found hobbits, to which Aragorn responds, a man may do both. You know, recognizing that their deeds they're currently doing are likely to be in a story, and there is a self-aware element that they're part of this green, this grand narrative. Um, Amir says to Aragorn, and I'll also quote, the men of the mark do not lie and are not easily deceived. Meaning that when he sees the truth in Aragorn's eyes, because he himself is honest, he is able to discern honesty from falsehood better. The idea being that honesty is not naive in its very nature. Honesty is actually very wise. The more honest you are, the easier it is to parcel dishonesty from honesty. So Amir's in this bind. He wants to bring Aragorn back. By law, he has to bring Aragorn back. However, he doesn't really know what to do. And he is just concerned about the application of his laws versus his duty to save the people of Rohan versus judging these companions that he now has met as true companions and wanting to aid them on their journey. And he doesn't know how to judge them. And Aragorn says, as he has ever judged, good and ill have not changed since yesteryear, nor are they one thing among elves and dwarves and another among men. It is a man's part to discern them as much in the golden wood as in his own house. In this exchange, we come to the crux of it. Aragorn is telling him that you have the capacity to choice, the doom of choice, as a matter of fact, 
that no matter what you choose, there's an element of fatality and doom to it. But as an individual, you can choose. And what is right and what is wrong has nothing to do with the application of both cultural, legal, or geographical difference. That there is a universal quality to what is right and what is wrong. And Amir, I'm appealing to that universal quality of rightness and wrongness. We here are companions trying to save friends from torture and death. In the time in which torture and death are everywhere, we are pri prioritizing these two lives because these are the two lives we can save. Will you help us? And Amir's like, well, the laws say no. In fact, my own self-interest says no, because if you come with me, you're clearly of a divine lineage, of a kingly lineage. You can rally the people of Rohan to victory better than I could. So my laws say no. My self-interest says no. But I think it's right to let you do it. And what does Amir do? In an act of great bravery, despite his own men mocking him, he aids them by giving them horses. Now, Midnight Myth listeners, the reason I want to highlight this and this point it is so easy to succumb to the pressures of conformity and do the wrong thing to appease the will of the others. How many military commanders made the wrong choice because they thought their men wanted them to do it? How many bad bosses have made the popular but wrong choice and that ends up hurting the, the, the place that they're trying to lead? How many people have sat and watched a bully pick on an innocent kid knowing it's wrong and not stop them? Amir doesn't do that. He breaks his own laws, he breaks his own self-interest, and he helps two people on he helps three individuals on their journey despite the fact that he has no reason to help them, he has no self-interest to help them, and it's against the, the actual laws he's sworn to upend. And I think this is a very optimistic take on both the inter international relations that we see among these people. It's an optimistic take on human nature and the idea that push comes to shove in the worst circumstances, there are those who will do the right thing. I think that's wonderful. This is one of many uh, tests of honor that are administered throughout this book, throughout the two towers in general. Uh, Amir choosing to do the right thing, even though it's not the easiest thing for him to do with regard to law or his own self-interest. Choosing to acknowledge the honor of the individuals in front of him and allow them to continue forward on their quest, acknowledging their inner uh, goodness. Uh, and I think this is something that many of our characters will be uh, tested against, this kind of standard. Uh, I, I think that's wonderful. okay with it. I would love to rewind just a little bit to talk about another episode in this book that I think also deals in honor tests and also deals in relationships across, um, across boundaries. Yeah, uh, let's rewind. So I want to talk about the, uh, the death of Boromir because I think that this is a significant emotional driver for the entirety of the Two Towers, if not the entirety of the Lord of the Rings. I think this is one of the most important events within uh, the story proper. Great, go on. I, I can't wait to hear. So this book begins with the death of Boromir, which uh, is a departure from the movies, or the movies depart from this in that they end the Fellowship of the Ring with the death of Boromir. And I think that's a good choice for the movies to make because we see Boromir's uh, arc come full circle. He goes from being a prideful man to being one who is uh, you know, on his back, pledging fealty to Aragorn in his moments of death after saving the lives of the hobbits. I think it's great. But I think in uh, the way that it's presented in the books, it gives us more of a forward action that I want to follow through the entirety of this story. Love it. And I definitely want to come back to Rohan, especially to talk about Theoden uh, and the role of some of these characters within the universe of the Two Towers. 
But to start the book with the death of Boromir, uh, I want to discuss the uh, legacy that it lives in within medieval literature, which is something that I'm really interested in uh, with The Lord of the Rings, uh, specifically how the death of Boromir parallels a very important piece of medieval literature called the Chanson de Roland, or the Song of Roland. I know that name, Roland. You do know that name, Roland. I know it. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so you're making a Dark Tower reference here. Uh, hey, listen, babe. All things, even the beams, serve the tower. Sure, or the two towers. Uh, but the Song of Roland, if you are not familiar with it, is an 11th or 12th century epic poem in French. It's written somewhere between 1040 and 1115, but it is part of what's known as the Matter of France, which is a, uh, a huge material of legendary and historical literary work uh, around the cultural beginnings of the French nation. And it's part of the legendaria around the very real uh, French king, French monarch, Charlemagne. So the major event that is uh, part of the Song of Roland is the Battle of Roncevaux Pass, which took place in the late 8th century uh, between Charlemagne's forces and the Muslim army in Spain. Roland is Charlemagne's nephew, and he's his greatest and most loyal soldier. Now, important to note the, that the historical battle took place in 778 before the emergence of knights, which is why we don't call Roland a knight, uh, but the poem is a key text in the development of the chivalric literary tradition. So they do use the term chevalier in French. It's just uh, a, a sort of anachronistic term applied to this character. If I understand correctly, you're saying that in a medieval sense, this story was one of the foundational ethos is that would go on to define the night in the future. Yeah, in okay. the romance, in the Arthurian legend, all of that. This is a key text in that development. But literally pre-knighthood. Yes, absolutely. Got it. So during the Battle of Roncevaux Pass, Roland is urged to blow his horn, which is called Oliphant, presumably because it's made from the tusk of an elephant, uh, to call Charlemagne and the rest of the army back, but he refuses to do so because they're winning the battle and it's looking really good for them. It's only when the Muslim forces start to push back and turn the tide that Roland actually blows the horn, but by this point, it's already too late and he knows it. He is dead uh, and all he is doing is trying to make sure that his forces get back in time to stop a total massacre. He blows the horn so fiercely that his temples burst and Charlemagne arrives in time only to mourn over his dead body, over the body of his nephew and his beloved soldier. The death of Roland looks a lot like the death of Boromir. Both of these men die in the wilderness, in an unknown country, separated from their people and their peers fighting a foreign enemy. Both die sounding a horn that alerts their company but cannot save their lives. And both men are significantly honored in death by their kings, Aragorn and Charlemagne, respectively. Whoa. I think this illusion draws some interesting comparisons, though, because as we know from our conversation in The Fellowship of the Ring, Boromir is not the perfect knight. Roland is. Boromir is a deeply flawed character who, in his final moments of life, moved from attacking a hobbit to trying to save one's life. He dies confessing to Aragorn what he did and realizing that he has failed in his task once again. And Roland is what's called the flower of France. So there is this disconnect between the heroic tradition uh, of the epic poem that creates these grand narratives about knights in their dying hours versus the reality in Boromir of someone dying with shame uh, feeling the weight of greed, feeling as though they could not accomplish their task. And yet, after his death, he's sent away in honor. The men who survive him, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas, compose a beautiful song as they are sending his body into the river Anduin. They compose this song calling him Boromir the Brave, Boromir the Tall, Boromir the Bold, and asking for news of him on the western, southern, and northern wind. Uh, there is this sense that uh, one's faults get wrapped up into this heroic lullaby, this heroic elegy as you are sent off to sea, uh, and what is remembered of you is 
the greater image. It's greater than the sum of its parts. So I think there's this really interesting way uh, to explore the way we started this podcast, talking about uh, song and story and how the truth is wrapped up within them, uh, and where in Boromir's case, uh, some of the truth is erased through the uh, greater and more uh, almost allegorical truth that is conveyed. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Really awesome point. I My brain is buzzing with a few things that I kind of want to bring into this conversation. Please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you'll permit me. And understanding your point is that Boromir falls to the temptation of the ring, but redeems himself, dies in honor in battle, and is thus honored by his companions. And even when we get to the point where uh, Boromir's name is mentioned to Aemir in, um, in the, when they're in Rohan, he mentions that we know of Boromir, we saw his horse come back, we knew him to be brave and strong and true, and laments the idea that hearing that he fell as really bad and ill tidings, because someone as great as Boromir has fallen means... Well, there's not a lot of hope for us, you know, horse lords here yeah. in Rohan. Which is one of the reasons why I say this is a significant emotional driver for the novel. It'll come back even more in book four. But yes, yes go on. And it will be a major point in the dialogues between Frodo and, and Faramir coming, yeah. coming soon in our next podcast. The idea of the song and immortalizing an individual and their deeds in song. And I want to like... Focus on that. This is something that happens, and it happens quite frequently in Lord of the Rings. And it's also a way that a lot of characters transmit knowledge to each other, and then also you presume to the next generation they are remembered in song. This is a tradition that is both Germanic and Norse in a European sense, in a tradition that um, dealt with uh, societies largely illiterate, living in areas that were predominantly cold, like Northern Europe, where nine months of the year you really couldn't go outside, otherwise it would be dangerous. You could risk you know, injury to your body through exposure. In a time when people didn't have central heat like we have today. And in that time, out of these halls, these great halls, where powerful, usually men, uh, kings or earls or jarls, as they were called, would gather people together, and in them there would be a poet or a singer who would usually have a harp and they would tell heroic deeds. You mentioned that, and this is what got my brain buzzing, that they erased part of the complicated legacy, but immortalizing him in a song. And to a certain extent, that's literally true. They don't sing the song of Boromir succumbing to his temptations and almost injuring someone he swore to protect in the event of furthering his own geopolitical and military prowess. But that would make for an ill song, I think we'd all agree. The idea of taking a deed and immortalizing it, or at least elongating the life, if not immortalizing it, in a song codifies particular normative behavior that can be defined as essential to the group in the sense of um, the ancient Viking or medieval Viking. It was military prowess in the, in the aspect of Boromir. It is both military prowess plus humility and wisdom and kindness and honor and all of these things. So the, what they do when they take Boromir's life and turn it into a song is say, these are the things that we want to honor about a person that we think are the most ideal version of a self. And we want to pass this along to others so that they have this ideal to strive for. This is a very powerful cultural force. Once we have defined collectively, what does it mean to be us and let us reinforce it with going into a hall and singing these songs about it, we are more likely to act upon that. A great example of this um, in a completely different era and time in human history is how Alexander the Great was inspired by Achilles. Achilles and the poem or song of the Iliad was very influential to him where he's like, hey, what does it mean to be a great Greek man? It means to be like fearless in the face of your enemies, 
It means being proud and strong. It means going into battle and charging headstrong first as the one with the spear and eviscerating every enemy until you have conquered and beat them into submission. And that forged one of the greatest Hellenistic empires of human history. At the same time, we see with Boromir that element of, yes, does it erase the literal history? Yes, but we have to remind ourselves that telling tales and putting things in songs is somewhat a or pre-historical. Right, yeah, or pseudo-historical. Yeah, pseudo-historical would be the better term. They're not trying to write the history of Boromir, but accentuate the traits that they think are the most advantageous and the most collectively Middle-earthian and being able to promote those through the act of the singing. I think that's wonderful. And what's most important about Boromir and his deeds is what impact they have on the people closest to him, right? So his uh, his giving his life for Merry and Pippin will be a significant driver for the actions of Merry and Pippin going forward. His death uh, being the first of the company to truly die, even though they think they've lost Gandalf, being the first one to really slip through their fingers is going to weigh on Aragorn's soul. Uh, and the fact that he and Frodo never reconciled is going to weigh deeply on Frodo's soul going forward as he tries to resist the power of the ring. So this character, I think, is a, a an incredible hinge in terms of how much uh, his legacy will carry forth as just a great man, as a man who has stories told about him, but also in terms of the relationships that he cultivated with people, the mistakes that he made, and also uh, the goodness that he put out while he was alive. And there's also a theme of redemption here. Yeah. Though Boromir temporarily gives in to the ring, and though he seeks to weaponize the ring for his own advantage and his own power, he is able to ultimately walk away from that and redeem himself through battle and through self-sacrifice. And in that respect, it is a fundamentally optimistic narrative that we're dealing with here is that, yeah, you might stumble, you might fail, but you'll have the chance to redeem yourself before you die. Yeah. You know, it's not like a George R.R. Martin where like, yep, no redemption. Someone cuts your throat in the middle of the night. It's not a cynical narrative, but an optimistic one. And that's why it gets to be a song because Boromir literally laid down his life to try to save others. And because of that, he does get to redeem himself. He tries to harm a hobbit. He dies helping some hobbits. And I think that does kind of balance the scales, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, I think the real tragedy of the moment is that the forgiveness that he seeks is forgiveness from Frodo. Uh, and while he can symbolically achieve that kind of redemption in the eyes of the reader and in the eyes of Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas, Merry, and Pippin, he will never be able to truly reconcile with Frodo. And I think that is a weight that we carry with us as we move on, is that uh, Boromir felt remorse immediately after what he did to Frodo, and yet the two of them will never come face to face again. Yep. And redemption's a theme that will go forward in this narrative. Yeah. You know, as we get to the next book, when we ask ourselves, what happens if you've been hollowed out so much by the temptation of the ring that you've become a monster? Can you be redeemed? Will be the theme of the next book yeah. in the like the triangle of Sam Frodo and Gollum. So redemption is starting with Boromir, who does get redeemed, who does get to be in song, who does get to be remembered as a great and good man despite the fact he had one moment of weakness, you know? And I think that is going to continue to go forward in the other characters and that we're going to see that redemption is a major part of this story going forward. Absolutely. So I promised that we would come back to Rohan and I'd like to do that now. Is that cool with you? Totally. I know that you and I are both big fans of Rohan, big fans of Theoden in particular. I'm a big fan of Eowyn. Uh, some of the most amazing characters and stories come out of this part of Middle-earth. Um, but I would be remiss if I did not mention Tolkien's inspiration for the people of Rohan and the sort of cultural uh, awareness that 
uh, rises up around them. I feel like we're going to get ancient. We're going to get Germanic. We're going to get medieval. We sure are. I can't wait to do that. So to begin with this, Aragorn, as they are approaching Edoras, repeats a few lines of an ancient rhyme known as the Lament for the Rohirrim. Uh, and they start with the lines, Where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? Can I just say, the poetry in this book, compared to the first, it is so much better in The Two Towers. I think you're right. However, those two lines are quite lovingly lifted from an Anglo-Saxon poem uh, called The Wanderer. So, hey, great artists steal. Absolutely. Great artists do steal, and Tolkien is one of those. Uh, so he's taking from this Old English poem, Old English and Anglo-Saxon, are kind of an interchangeable set of terms. The reason that's a little problematic and most scholars will say Old English is that the Anglo-Saxon culture as we know it was extremely multicultural and multilingual. They spoke Old English, they spoke Latin, they spoke multiple uh, dialects of Old English. Uh, Give me a date. What time period are we dealing with here? The history guy. They arrive in the British Isles around the 5th century. Uh, So what happens is the earliest sort of Anglo-Saxon invaders on the Isles, at least in uh, the legends that surround them, are these two brothers named Hengist and Horsa. And they are hired by uh, a minor warlord who calls himself King of the Britons named Vortigern, who, if you're familiar with any of the Arthurian legend, you will know is the predecessor of Arthur. Uh, He's kind of a a, a usurper of the throne from Uther Pendragon. Uh, Now, in the actual history of this, in the fifth century, Rome withdrew all of their troops from the Isles, leaving Britain totally susceptible to invasion from Picts and Scots and everyone from all over the world. So what Vortigern did was hire these mercenaries, Hengist and Horsa, to bring their uh, tribes, their Angles, their Saxons, their Jutes, Swedes, Frisians, whatever, to come and drive out these Picts and Scots. Can I just interrupt real quick with a question? Yeah. Are you discussing this as a literal history or a mythology or like... We know that this invasion happened. There is some legend that is mixed in with it, and our sources that we have are a little bit spotty at best, because if there is a dark age in the world, it's Britain in the 5th century. There's not a whole lot of actual um, uh, objective writing on what happened at this time. Got it. So uh, he hires Hengist and Horsa. They drive out the Picts and Scots, and then Hengist and Horsa and their... Uh, Anglo-Saxon tribes start getting an eye for Britain and realizing that they like it. It might be a nice place to live. And they say, hey, they don't actually have anybody to defend them. That's why they hired us. Why don't we take it for ourselves? So the full-scale Anglo-Saxon invasion is due to this particular change of sides by these mercenaries. Now, I bring these guys up because as we saw in that Anglo-Saxon verse that is the introduction to the Rohirrim, I think that we're seeing uh, a parallel between the Anglo-Saxons and the people of Rohan. I think there are tons of things that they have in common. So their language in the text is represented by Anglo-Saxon or Old English. Uh, Their names are Anglo-Saxon in origin. They eat and drink in the Golden Hall of Edoras, uh, which is very similar to the uh, Golden Hall Hurat, which is central to Beowulf, the great Anglo-Saxon epic poem. Uh, And there appears to be a certain amount of cultural exchange with Gondor, too. So there's this recognition of the multicultural uh, quality of the Anglo-Saxons that is a huge part of the men of Rohan. Uh, And to draw in these sort of Hengist and Horsa figures once again, uh, there is some... Uh, scholarly debate about whether or not these were real historical brothers or whether they are uh, a sort of euhemerized mythological character. Um, So there are some who believe they're based on these uh, motifs of magical twins, and many associate them with horses. Uh, They think that these might have been horse deities that were worshipped in older Germanic tribes that then became these sort of uh, mythical founders of the Anglo-Saxon culture. And to that, uh, there is a a significant 
architectural element in most Anglo-Saxon architecture called the horsehead gable, where if you'll look at the top of a, of a hall or a farm, there'll be two horse heads sort of facing each other. And the art direction of Peter Jackson's two towers shows a horsehead gable on almost every single building in Edoras, the capital of Rohan. So it's definitely alluding to this Anglo-Saxon past. And the old English term for horsehead gable is hangst und horse. So it's clearly alluding to this. And I think it's fun to see all of these similarities between this real world medieval culture uh, that is a huge influence in the shift between Britain and England. The foundations of what England is today are the Anglo-Saxons as they took over Britain and how this kind of cultural mishmash uh, created the modern world. That being a central tenet of the Lord of the Rings is really fascinating to me. Yeah, wow, that is really awesome stuff. I'm really appreciating where you're going with. Um, you know, it's important to note as we trace the the history of all of the different Germanic tribes and how they influenced what became medieval Europe and eventually became the modern world, that, you know, we have to remember that Tolkien was a student of both language and history. Yeah. He was very much um, into understanding these different periods and was inspired by these different periods. And in particular, how different languages had evolved and changed within this sort of uh, medieval soup. You know, the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, when it uh, was eventually carved up by different Germanic quote-unquote, barbarians, a loaded term, to say the least. Um, at that time, when that happened, the Roman Empire had already withdrawn from England. England was already the edge of the world, as far as the Romans were concerned. And when they had problems internally, it was the first place they abandoned. And because of that, there was this, who whose land is this? Whose world is this? Who gets to rule this? And uh, there were several different tribes competing for them. You know, one little detail that I picked out when Tolkien is describing the writers of the Rohirrim and how they have uh, surrounded Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli is that he says that they are holding spears of ash. And I thought that was significant considering that there is a Norse deity known for having a magic ash wood spear, and that would be Odin. Odin is for, has a forged ash wood spear that when he throws it, will hit whoever he wishes. That was forged by one of the dwarves um, and given to him as a gift. And I thought it was no surprise that here they are discussing the spears of them, and they're all ash wood. Um, it's also important important to note that the Anglo-Saxons, historically speaking, as a, a tribe who inspired Rohan, are part of a broader um, post-Roman Germanic world. And we say Germanic. It's an interesting term. I was reading um, a history, a history of the Vikings, and the historian who wrote it was discussing that Germany was a creation of the Romans. And I thought that was very interesting because the Romans had conquered Celtic Gaul, modern-day France. They called the places that they hadn't conquered Germania. That was the term that they used, and that forged the place where Roman civilization ended and barbaric Germany began. And because there was this separation and this differentiation, there was a place where Roman civilization stopped and German barbarians started. That led to a culture that would, you know, hundreds of years later, eventually lead to people such as the Anglo-Saxons who went to come and conquer and control England. The thing that I go back to where we started is the idea of geography and border and place. The idea of a Roman civilization that starts and stops based on this border and a German civilization that begins, that is inherently barbaric, is the breeding ground, the beginning causal point, which leads to an Anglo-Saxon culture, which would come 
when the Romans retreat from Britain to define the Dark Age, the quote-unquote Dark Age of Britain, which would then become the inspiration for Rohan in The Lord of the Rings. In other words, there is a long causal chain of events that led to the father of fantasy dreaming up this fantasy that dates back hundreds and thousands of years before he lived that is the inspiration point. The question at hand is, all of us creative, pseudo-creative professionals out here, why are we doing everything that we're doing? And the idea of the midnight myth is to connect those lines and say that we're part of this long civilization, this long continuum of events, that none of us are actually separated or divorced from those events, and that we live with under the shadow of those events, and to celebrate that fact, that it's actually awesome that there's a world in which someone can be inspired by Anglo-Saxon poetry to create a fantasy world called Rohan, that lets people in 2020 sit in their spare bedroom slash podcast studio to discuss them and extrapolate meaning from them. It, As the history guy here, there's nothing that brings me more joy. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's something that Tolkien warns against uh, in his foreword to The Lord of the Rings uh, and something that he uh, is significantly interested in in terms of literary criticism. He warns against reading too much into autobiography. As we've talked about before, he reads against reading too much into allegory. But he also warns against uh, looking too far into uh, an author's source material in terms of... Uh, interpreting the meaning of the text. And there's part of me that thinks, well, a lot of what we do is look at source material and, and use that to interpret the meaning of a text. But what Tolkien's really getting at here is encouraging readers not to stop seeing the forest for the trees. Uh, not to, uh, you know, if you're actually eating a soup that is made of all of these different ingredients, they're great ingredients each one of them probably tastes wonderful on their own, but together they make a cohesive soup. That's what he is making for you in this fantasy world. He's putting in ingredients of things that he knows as a scholar at Oxford, as a philologist, as a teacher of English literature, as a medievalist. He is putting in ingredients that he knows. He is deconstructing them and reconstructing them into something new so that when you taste it, when you read it, it feels authentic, it feels cohesive, it feels like a real world. And that, I think, is what he is doing with not only the Anglo-Saxon influence on the world of Rohan, but the Song of Roland as the inspiration for the death of Boromir, Chaucer as the inspiration for the Council of Elrond, and so on and so forth, with all of the inspiration that he is taking from medieval literature and putting into this secondary world that he has created. He is disassembling the things that he knows and reassembling them as something totally new that none of us have ever seen before, but that still feels familiar. And taken all together is a very interesting soup to taste. Uh, so that is something that I continue to find fascinating about reading these texts is that, yes, I can pick out the different ingredients. I can taste that there's turmeric or I can taste that there's cilantro in this. But, uh, you know, learning the, the background of that thing does not at all take away from the authenticity of the secondary world that Tolkien has created. I mean, that's a great point. The writers of Rohan are not, by fact, not Anglo-Saxons. They're not the Anglo-Saxons. They're the writers of Rohan. Yeah. Like, that's exactly who they are, and that's what they need to be within this story. And in much the same way that, you know, the dwarves are not the dwarves of Norse mythology. Right, even though their language is represented by Old Norse and runes. And they use runes, and yes, and you could understand them as inspired by it, yeah. When Tolkien created the world, he drew from the influences and from the inspiration of his life and his studies as a scholar. And he created something wholly original. Our job at the midnight myth is to pick those apart and ask why, and not to discourage or discount Tolkien, but to celebrate, to say that we see these, these lines that he has drawn and how amazing is it that these lines exist 
the journey that I've gone through on the Midnight Myth to understand a writer like Tolkien in this way now at my life, where I'm at at this, this exact point, is truly phenomenal. To be to, to like pause and be like, hey, what's the point of all of the thinking, of all of the picking apart, of all of the discourse? Why read all of the history books and philosophy books? Why read all of the ancient myths? And why do any of it at all if it's not to understand a boy picked up a book called The Lord of the Rings and it changed that boy's life? And made him a different person, thought maybe I could be braver and truer, and maybe I can be inspired by the events that happened in the past, and maybe that I can slightly believe in magic, not in a literal sense, but in a symbolic sense. And I think to me, that's the lesson I get out of Tolkien, because I was that boy. I think that is a, a wonderful way to wrap up this incredible discussion that we've had uh, on the podcast today. Uh, as we said, we are going to be back with a second part of The Two Towers. We're going to discuss the journey of the ring bearers as the ring goes east. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that conversation as, wow, isn't it crazy that the first half of The Two Towers has none of Frodo and Sam in it? How wild is that? Uh, but we will be back in a week with that discussion. Uh, thank you so much for listening and for all of your feedback so far. This has been a really cool project to do because our fans have been really excited. We've had a lot of people reach out and say this is how they found us or that you know this was something that they were waiting for us to do. So if there is something that you want us to talk about, if there is a uh, part of The Lord of the Rings or if there is a story or a movie that we haven't done yet that you want to hear us do, please reach out. We are at The Midnight Myth on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast or sign up for our email list at midnightmyth.com. Uh, we would love to be in touch with you and uh, continue to make the, the work that you want to hear from us. Yeah, and if you guys all go out there and hit us up on Twitter and say, do this thing, we're going to do the thing. Yeah, we'll do the thing. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.